You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Well, we are back this morning in Paul's letter to the Romans. And we are going to be beginning today in Romans chapter 11. And so if you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and open them to Romans 11. And by way of introduction, review, flyover, whatever we want to call it, I'm going to just talk us through where we've been. It's good for me. It's good for you. What a wonderful thing it would be if at the end of this series through Romans, we could all articulate in a few minutes what Paul's argument is. It would be good for us. Paul begins by greeting, of course, the saints in Rome. And very interestingly, at the end of his greeting, he tells them that he is eager to be with them. And he is eager to preach the gospel to them. And then he says those famous words we know, or I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the Gentile. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Not the fact that God is righteous, though he is, but in the gospel, the righteousness that God gives to sinners by faith is revealed. And then he, for the better part of two chapters, explains to us how that righteousness that God gives to sinners through faith in Christ is the only kind of righteousness we could ever have. Because every human being born of Adam is under sin, Jew and Gentile alike. We have no righteousness of our own. God is good. He is just. He is an impartial judge. It's true that he'll reward those who do good. Problem is nobody does good. It's true. He'll reward those who seek him. Problem is nobody does that. As it stands, the law shuts everyone's mouth. We're all accountable to God. And through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, says Paul, The righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament, bear witness to it. This is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Christ is the satisfaction for our sins. He fulfilled both the penalty of the law and all of its righteous requirements. And so we are justified by faith. In him. Just as it was with Abraham, it is with all the saints of God that we are saved not by our works, but by faith in Christ, not by our merit, but by God's grace. And present justification, having been justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, guarantees for us that we will be finally saved. We therefore rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because we've been united to Christ. If when we were God's enemies and we were sinners, Christ died for us, how much more so now will we finally be saved by him? We will be. And then Paul lays out a, 
a grounding of the gospel in covenant representation. Just like Adam represented us all in the garden, and his sin and his guilt was counted to us all, so too, and even more so, for all those who are in Christ by faith, his righteousness is counted to them. This representation of Christ is so much greater than what happened to us in Adam that Paul says that where sin abounded in us, grace through Christ abounded all the more so that we might reign in eternal life. He anticipates an objection. Well, if that's true, then we should just sin. We can sin. If where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. His answer to that is the indignant by no means. Why? Because we've been united to Jesus. We've been baptized into him. We have been justified from sin's guilt. We now consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And we have been set free now from sin's dominion because we're not under the law anymore. We're under grace now. He tells us we've become obedient from the heart. He asks, by the way, when you were sinning, what did it do for you? Answer, nothing good. And it ended in death. But now, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He then lays out for us, beginning in chapter 7, how we have been set free from the law so that we might belong to Jesus. And in belonging to Christ, We now can bear fruit for God, and we serve the Lord in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code, which begs a question, raises a question. If we needed to be set free from the law in order to bear fruit, and if it's being under grace and not under the law that has actually set us free, is the law bad? His answer again is, by no means. The law is good. The law is righteous and holy and just. The problem is with our sin. But in God's economy of salvation, when the law is preached accompanied by the power of the Spirit, it shows us the depth of our sin. It shows us how corrupt we are. Paul says, the law was the way effectively I was led to Christ because I saw that I was sold under sin. But Paul, like us, He said, I'm grieved by the fact that I break the law. I delight in the law in my inner being. I agree with God that the law is good, but I'm a weak man. And I often find myself not doing the good I want to do. I often find myself doing the bad things I don't want to do. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is because God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, couldn't do. What did he do? He sent his son in the likeness of our flesh for our sin, and so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. All those who have been united to Christ in them because of their union with him, the righteous requirements of the law have been fulfilled. Paul then talks about how we have been adopted by God. He's no longer our judge. He's now our father. 
he speaks of the reality of this present suffering. How for now, adopted children of God as we are, we groan, we suffer. The creation groans too. But we take heart knowing that the spirit of God is with us in the groaning and that Christ intercedes for us at the throne of God. And we take heart knowing that all those God has foreknown, he will save. And Paul is so bold as to say that no one can bring a charge against us because of Christ. No one can condemn us because of Christ. And nothing in all of the universe, not our sin and not Satan himself, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans 1 to 8. Beginning in chapter 9, Paul pivots to speak of his grief for his kinsmen according to the flesh, his fellow Israelites. He's grieved that so many of them are not trusting in the Messiah, in Jesus. There's a problem, of course, you realize, with the fact that Israel, by and large, had rejected Jesus. It raises the question of whether or not God's faithful. God had made a lot of promises to Israel. Does he just break promises all the time? Is that the kind of God he is? Or maybe, maybe Paul's wrong. I mean, maybe Jesus isn't the Messiah. Something's up here. How do we make sense of Israel's unbelief? So Paul begins in Romans 9 what he will continue to write of through Romans 11. He says it is not as though the word of God has failed. It's not the physical offspring of Abraham or Israel that are the true people of God. It is the children of promise whom God has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. This has always been the plan. God saves his people solely by his grace and mercy, which he bestows freely. The prophets had foretold these things, and in all of it, God is just. And the riches of his glory are pointedly on display through his work of redemption. Then Paul asks, what should we say to all this? His answer is that the Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness were given righteousness by faith. And that Israel, who sought to establish their own righteousness under the law, didn't attain it. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. They stumbled over Jesus. They, Paul says, have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They're ignorant of the righteousness of God, that righteousness that God gives to sinners by faith. They're ignorant of the righteousness that's revealed in the gospel. They sought to establish their own, and in doing that, Paul says, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And he grounds everything in this statement that Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The law promises life to those who keep it. The problem is we've all broken it. So God sent Jesus for us so that the righteous requirement of that law would be fulfilled in us as people. Paul appeals to Moses to demonstrate the difference between the righteousness of the law that's based on works and the righteousness based on faith. He makes plain the way of salvation. By faith in Jesus, God's people are justified and saved. And God's people gladly confess him with their lips. Paul then again cites the prophets, as he does throughout this letter. He engages the Old Testament constantly. 
He cites Isaiah and Joel to demonstrate that everyone who believes in Jesus and calls on his name will be saved. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or whether you are a Gentile. And so Jesus is to be preached to all mankind indiscriminately. And it is through the message of Christ, the heralding of Christ for sinners, that faith comes. Paul then refers to the Psalms and the prophets again to demonstrate that God had never left the Gentiles altogether without a witness. Even that of the sun and the moon and the stars, the creation bore witness to everyone of God's existence. And this, Paul tells us, pointed to God's plan to make himself explicitly known to the nations through the preaching of Christ. And as to the unbelief of many Israelites, the Hebrew scriptures were not silent. Through their unbelief, many Israelites would be rejected, even as many Gentiles would be saved. So that's Romans 1 to 10. Let's now look to the text. Romans 11. Beginning in verse 1, and I will read through verse 10. This is the word of God. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. We thank God for his word today and every day. My plan is to preach this text in three points, applying and reflecting as we go. So point one, God has not rejected his people. Pretty simple. God has not rejected his people. We're going to look at verses one to five. You can put your eyes on verse one. So as Paul has done repeatedly throughout the letter, he anticipates an objection in light of what he's been writing. In light of everything that you've written, Paul, has God rejected his people? Has Israel been utterly forsaken by God? Has the whole of the nation been rejected? Paul's answer, by no means, no way. There are Israelites who have been saved. There are Israelites who are being saved, and there are Israelites who will be saved. He had already written this and cited the prophets to prove it. 
But then he even says, look, I'm exhibit A. I'm an Israelite, a genuine one, a descendant of Abraham and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Then in the beginning of verse 2, he makes the assertion, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, Paul's going to spend a large portion of chapter 11 grounding that assertion. All the way through verse 32 is effectively his explanation of that statement, that God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God is saving all of the children of promise. His promises stand. He breaks none. All those whom he foreknew and predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, all of these he has called and justified and glorified. That's the word. The latter portion of verse 2, Paul, to further explain and illustrate the point, is going to appeal to 1 Kings, the book of Kings. And he says, you remember what the scripture says about Elijah? Do you remember how he appealed to God, what he said to God about his fellow Israelites? Do you remember that? And he cites it. Paraphrase here. Elijah's word to the Lord, we heard it earlier, Lord, these people are wicked. They've killed your prophets. They've destroyed your altars. They've profaned your place of worship. And I alone am left. And they're trying to kill me. Elijah, the iconic prophet, appealed to God against his fellow Israelites. From his perspective, there were none left among the faithful. Verse 4, Paul says, but what did God say? How did God respond to Elijah? I've kept for myself 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah, from your vantage point, says the Lord, it's bad. And in many senses it is, but I'm saving my people. I'm keeping and protecting and drawing and saving a people who are my very own. They are my 7,000. 7,000, by the way, the number seven, fulfillment, perfection, by the cube of 10. This is a great multitude that God is saving. Elijah is like, there's nobody. And the Lord says, I'm doing it. I'm saving my people. In other words, Elijah was mistaken. God had kept for himself a great multitude of people. And notice in the words from Kings and even here as Paul cites it in verse 4, Notice that God had done it. He had kept them. If anyone is going to be kept from idolatry, if anyone is going to be kept from false worship, if anyone would know the Lord, it's only by God's own doing. Then in verse 5, Paul pulls it all together. You can put your eyes there. He draws the conclusion for the present time. Just like it was then with Elijah, 
So it is now at the present time. God is saving a remnant. It looked terrible then, doesn't look good now. But God is saving his people. This remnant has been chosen by God's grace. These verses should encourage us. And in one sense, they rebuke us all. It's interesting how the word of God is like that, isn't it? That two-edged sword. On the one hand, it's encouraging here. On the other hand, man, I'm rebuked. We have a tendency to doubt and question what's going on in the church. I don't just mean here, I mean broadly. It's how we are. We have a tendency to presume that we can know what the Lord's doing. We have a tendency to engage in, here's an old word, fear-mongering. We have a tendency to engage and buy into doom and gloom. Everything's terrible. We even have a tendency to think that we are the only faithful one. When in reality, God is saving the multitude of his elect. And God is preserving his church. Things, as I said, they seem bleak in Elijah's time. And we know what Paul had written about with respect to his grief. He's agonizing over the fact that his kinsmen are rejecting Christ. Wasn't good. But consider the great things that God had done from Elijah to Paul to now. And great things he will still do. A word to us all. If we find, as we assess ourselves, if we find that we have a critical spirit toward our brothers and sisters, if we find it difficult to say good things about what's going on in the church, if we're regularly questioning the legitimacy of other believers because their piety is not obvious to us, if we tend to think that we are the only serious Christians that we know, if we think that the church would be better off if more people were like us, then we should pump the brakes. We should assess. Because, beloved, it's easy, right, for us, not meaning to, we become brokers of Satan's doubt more than we are agents of God's grace. It's easy for us to fall into that trap. May we always remember God is faithful and God is saving his people. He's building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. So may we, saints of CBC, may we strive to be faithful. Amen, someone. And may we always remember that the faithfulness that will win the day is not ours. It's God's, and that grounds us, humbles us. May we be humble and hopeful people. These words from Carl Truman are 
humorous on the one hand and absolutely dead on right. Listen, the West worships the individual. From the cradle to the grave, it tells us all how special and unique we are, how vital we are to everything, how there's a prize out there just for us. Well, the world turned for thousands of years before any of us showed up. It will continue turning long after we've gone short of the parousia, the return of Christ. And even if you, me, or the Christian next door are tonight hit by an asteroid, kidnapped by aliens, or sucked down the bathroom plug hole, very little will actually change. Even our loved ones will somehow find a way to carry on without us. We really are not that important. So let's drop the pious prayers, which translate roughly as, Lord, how can a special guy or gal like myself help you out some? And pray rather that the Lord will grow his kingdom despite our continual screw-ups, that he will keep us from knocking over the furniture, and that when all is said and done, somehow, by God's grace, we will finish well despite our best efforts to the contrary. May we be humble and hopeful people. May we take doctrine and the gospel and faithfulness deadly seriously, and may we not take ourselves seriously at all. We would serve one another better if we all had that posture. Taking our cue from our text today, what a comfort it is to know that even at the worst of times, there may very well be Many, many more of the people of God than we could ever imagine. Many preachers through history have said this. Charles Spurgeon comes to mind. How we so often think that heaven will be sparsely populated. Not so. The Lord is merciful, and he is saving his people. That's all under point one. God has not rejected his people. Point two, God's salvation is all of grace. Point two, God's salvation is all of grace. We're going to hone in on verse six here and reflect and apply. You can put your eyes there. He had said at the end of verse five that this remnant that God is saving has been chosen by grace. And then he doubles down. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. There's no merit here. When it comes to God's salvation, there is no Merit of our own. Salvation is completely God's free gift. Our adoption as God's sons and daughters has nothing to do with our worthiness. We do not save ourselves, certainly. We don't even save ourselves with God's help. We don't contribute to our salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. We are the blessed recipients of the gift of God's gracious salvation. All we do is come with an open hand to receive what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. God's grace and the merit of works are mutually exclusive. If you establish the one, you overturn the other. The scripture is clear. Think Paul in Galatians 5. I mean, it's all or nothing, right? I mean, there is no middle ground. There is no ambiguous, well, it's kind of grace and it's kind of you. He's like, look, if you're going to appeal to any work of the law, you better keep the whole thing. 
It's all your law keeping or it is all Christ for you. There is no other way. Paul makes this plain again in Romans 11, verse 6. That God is the Savior, that it's all of him. That before the foundation of the world, he loved us and he chose us in Christ and he predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters. And that had nothing to do with us, had nothing to do with the merit of any work that we might ever do. Now, we get this pretty well. We understand this pretty well on the front end of our salvation, like regarding conversion. Thank God we do. But where we struggle, and based upon the witness of the New Testament, where Christians have always struggled, is to apply what this means to our living, to our Christian lives. Again, Galatians chapter 3. You're aware of the words there? the questions that Paul asks at the beginning of the chapter, how did you receive the Spirit? How did you receive the Holy Spirit in the first place? Was it through works or was it through hearing with faith? Right? Answer, of course, well, we receive the Spirit by hearing the Word of Christ with faith. So then Paul says, having begun by the Spirit, having begun by hearing the Word of Christ with faith, will you now finish by the flesh? The answer is, of course, well, no. Having begun by faith in Christ, will you finish through your works? No. Having begun in grace, will you finish by merit? No. When it comes to salvation, let's not get this twisted. God's righteous. Just. There is merit when it comes to salvation. There are works necessary. It's just you and I haven't done them. Jesus did them all, and his record is counted to us as our record. His obedience counted to us as our obedience. His atoning work for all of our sins, past, present, and future. The satisfaction he's made against God's wrath, or God's wrath against our sin, past, present, and future. When it comes to righteousness, in all of these ways, Christ has given us everything that we will ever need. When it comes to the ground and cause of our salvation, there is no place for our works. Ground and cause, right? We will, so this is again where you're going to amen this, getting you ready. We will do good works as a fruit of our salvation. Amen. We will do good works as a necessary consequence of our salvation. Amen. We will. They are, good works are the fruit of our salvation. They are the necessary outflow of our salvation. And they are never the ground. They are never the cause of our salvation. Is continuing on in goodness a fruit of salvation or a cause of salvation? The answer is clear. They are fruit. Continuing on in goodness is a fruit of salvation received. It's that because of, not so that reality that we so often speak of. John Calvin on verse 6 wrote these words, whether you introduce works past or future, this declaration of Paul opposes you. For he says that grace 
leaves nothing to works. All right, so you're sitting there and you're saying, brother, this is wonderful. You're yet again talking to us about the grace of God and yet again helping us to see how salvation is all of Christ and it's all of grace. And what we do is a fruit of salvation, is a consequence of salvation, but it's not the cause of it. We thank you for that clarity. But why pull this out again? Well, number one, we need to hear it every week because we forget it every week. We do. Two, it matters for our peace. So there are good things in this life, right? There are encouraging things that are happening in your lives, in our lives, because of the work of God's Spirit. Amen. And at the same time, this life is shot through with loss, suffering, and sin. There is no possibility of peace if it depends in any way on our stability or our consistency. If peace with God in any way depends on our stability and consistency, there is no lasting peace. But if it depends wholly on God's faithfulness, and if it depends wholly on Christ, that's something entirely different. The third reason I bring this up, pull this out, and this is, I want to spend some time here. Understanding this, grace and merit, faith and works, and how all this works itself out, matters for our joy and our fruitfulness. It matters for our joy and our fruitfulness over the long haul. So, merit, the escape of punishment, working for God's approval, those are good motivators for a season. Merit and escape of punishment and working for God's approval will motivate people for a while. But even the most disciplined among us eventually snap under that weight. Can't bear it. And the more tender among us are perpetually haunted by the inadequacy of our devotion or our repentance or our sorrow over sin, the inadequacy of our effort to obey or fight the flesh, right? But when we begin to understand the magnitude of God's grace and the utter sufficiency of Christ's work, we begin to live in the joy and the freedom that Christ has won for us. We know, I know that you know, we know the truth about ourselves. You know the scriptures. We were by nature dead in sin. So how is it that any of us now alive, spiritually, how did that happen? How are we now alive? Is it not that we were made that way by the one who alone gives life? Yes. We know the truth about Jesus and his work. You know what the scripture says, that he's the end of the law for righteousness, that he died for us and he's the propitiation for our sins that he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And you know what he said. When he hung on the cross, he said it's finished. The work's over. 
His invitation is come to me. You're weary, you're burdened, you're heavy laden, come to me. Put my yoke upon you, learn from me for what? I'm gentle and I'm lowly in heart. I'll give you rest. You remember his interaction with the Samaritan woman in John 4? Consider the love of your Savior. Right? He, he's sitting at this well. A Samaritan woman comes to the well. It was a thing in the first place that Jesus, a man by himself, is speaking to a woman. But not only a woman, a Samaritan woman. Right? A religious and ethnic half-breed. Jews and Samaritans, they, they, don't, they don't relate. So he asks her for a drink. And she begins to talk to him about the well and not having things to draw water with. And then he looks at her and he says, you should ask me for living water. You should ask me for water that will quench the thirst of your soul and you'll never thirst again. You should ask me for that. She doesn't fully understand. Again, talks about the well and Jacob and various other things. And and she says, you know, I want that water. Give me this water, please. And he says, well, go and get your husband. And she's like, well, I don't have one. Right? And Jesus says, well, what you said is true. You've had five, and the man you're with now, you're not married to him. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. No kidding, right? And then she says, I know, they, they start to talk about the right way to worship the Lord. And she's like, I know when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us everything. And then Jesus says, I'm him. The one that's speaking to you, I'm, I'm him. And what does she do? Well, she believes and she goes and tells the whole town, right? But consider the posture of Christ. You should ask of me and I'll give you living water, right? You, guilt and shame, six ways from Sunday, but come to me and I'll give you water that will satisfy your soul. I am the Savior of the world, right? This is our Lord, how kind and how he loves us. So when we begin to understand these things, when these things are forever in front of our eyes, we begin to live in the freedom that Jesus has won for us. And joy is produced, and the fruit of the Spirit is cultivated, and it bursts forth. That's how this works. We don't fall into the trap of, of self-atonement and self-justification. We don't wake up each day seeking to do penance for the sins of yesterday. Like, if I can just do better today. Like, the, the category that most of us have for new morning mercies is simply, it's like, well, I really, really botched it yesterday. Maybe today I'll do better. No, we remember the posture of our Savior. We remember his words. And so what do we do? When we wake up in the morning, we go to him. We confess our sins to him. We talk to him about how much we need him. We lay ourselves at his feet. We ask for strength. Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3, right? We ask for strength in our inner being so that we might comprehend with all the saints the height, the depth, the length, and the breadth of the love of Christ for us. You prayed that lately? it every day. We ask for grace that we might live unto him. We ask for grace that we might live for the good of our neighbor. And then here's the thing, we live. We live. If God says it's good, we pursue it. If he says it'll destroy our lives, we run away. 
It's really simple. We ask, how can I love and serve my brothers and sisters today? And we go about doing that. That, beloved, is how free people live. Those who have been set free by the Son of God. Those who know that they're debtors to grace and they're happy to be. That's how we live. I received this correspondence recently, and I read it to you that it may encourage your heart as it did mine. People have been commenting. This is from a sister who understands herself to have been following the Lord for decades. People have been commenting on how different I am. And I tell them it's all because of the preaching of the gospel and because Jesus truly paid it all and finished the work of redemption on the cross. I've been freed from the burden of sin that has choked the very life out of me. And I want everyone to know Jesus and the freedom only he can give. God be praised. He is good to us. That's point two. Point three. Israel's failure to obtain righteousness. This is verses seven to ten. Point three. Israel's failure to obtain righteousness. Verses seven through ten. So put your eyes on verse seven. Paul, what then? What are we going to say to everything I've been writing? His answer is that Israel, so by and large, Israel on the whole, failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect, which would include Israelites, by the way, right? The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. It's clear in the context of what Israel was seeking was salvation, right? And they're seeking salvation, how? Through the pursuit of righteousness. So Israel, on the whole, did not obtain righteousness. The elect were given righteousness through faith in Christ, and the rest were hardened. Then in verses 8 to 10, Paul, regarding this hardening, he references Isaiah and Moses and David. So Deuteronomy 29.4, to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear, right? Isaiah 29.10, the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And then there's the words of David from Psalm 69. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually or make their backs bend forever. So these verses are instructive for us on a couple of fronts. I'm just going to make this first observation because, again, I want us to continue to learn how to read our Bibles well, but then I'm going to go on to the second one. Notice the apostolic application of Old Testament texts. Notice how the apostles apply the Old Testament, right? The ultimate spiritual meaning of Isaiah 29 and Deuteronomy 29, they regard the rejection of God's Christ, right? Notice that. Notice how the spiritual meaning of the Old Testament, right, the spiritual and ultimate meaning of what happens in the Old Testament centers on Christ, God's promises in him, and man's response to him. See that. Then there is the, the clear understanding that Psalm 69 ultimately, and here's the thing, literally applies to Jesus and his advent. Right? So however the psalm applies to David in his context is secondary at most. 
the point of Psalm 69 and the entire Psalter has to do with Christ, right? But then let's, for our purposes here, these verses are instructed for us on this level. They show us how Paul, at least in part, understood hardening. They show us how Paul, at least in part, understood hardening. We thought, of, we thought about this a little bit when we were in Romans chapter 9, and here it is before us again. So what does Paul write about the hardening that has come upon Israel? Well, part of it was related to the fact that God went silent. The, private, the prophets didn't speak, right? The seers didn't see. That's Isaiah 29. And also Deuteronomy 29, God did not give a heart to understand. God did not give eyes to see. God did not give ears to hear. So just a few pastoral comments here. I hope this is helpful to some. The election of sinners to salvation is an act of God's free grace and his sovereign will. That's clear in the scripture. The punishment of sinners is an act of God's justice against creatures who are already guilty. Human beings are sinful in and of ourselves. We commit sin voluntarily, and it is our own sin that results in our destruction. The wages of sin is death, right? The salvation, however, of any human being is God's free gift. The free gift of God is what? Eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. As to people who will be finally condemned, the Lord leaves them, abandons them to their own sinful desires. And what we should understand there is that God leaves them and abandons them to do what they want to do and hardens them in their rebellion against him. As to those who will be finally saved, the Lord alone causes them to be born again, gives them life, grants them faith and repentance. And he does this by a direct act of his own power on their soul. So all of Scripture, beloved, bears this out, that when people are saved, it is only by the sovereign grace of God. Amen? And when people perish, it is by the appointment of God, but it is through their own sin and fall. So what are we, as we all sit here under the Scriptures this morning, what are we to do with this? Well, we certainly shouldn't dismiss it. We shouldn't weaponize it either. But we receive it. We receive this word as little children right, with meekness and humility. And the way I want to conclude our time is part of this meekness and humility, like receiving this word, is to make a very significant connection. Paul says in verse 7 that the hardened Israelites failed to obtain what they were seeking. And what was that? What were they seeking? Hardened people were seeking what? Righteousness under the law through what they did. Put your eyes back on chapter 9 and verse 30. It's not bad that we would just read these words again. What shall we say then? 
that Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone, right? Who is Christ? Chapter 10 and verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Friends, beloved, as you sit here today, understand that this is at the heart of Christianity. There, upon the creation of man, Adam broke the covenant God made with him. Man sinned against God. And as a result of that, we died spiritually. We became corrupt in every aspect of our personhood, right? That's plain. And so, even then, God had a plan to redeem. God made a promise at the fall of man to redeem. So even when we sinned and wrecked it all, we see that God said, I'm going to do something. But then at the heart of Christianity is this, that we have no righteousness of our own, but are ruined and sold under sin. But Jesus is our forgiveness and our righteousness and our eternal life, and we trust wholly and only in him. This is the heart of the Christian faith. We are lost and ruined by the fall. God is a redeemer, and the Savior's name is Jesus. And he has accomplished forgiveness, he has accomplished righteousness, and he gives us eternal life. So, being hardened, it certainly entails being given over to sin. Being hardened certainly entails in being given over to sin, doing what we want to do, indulging our flesh, all of those things. I think most of us see that. But being hardened is also this, seeking to establish your own righteousness. That is hard-heartedness. Now, one sounds bad because it's full of debauchery and licentiousness, you know, indulging the flesh. That kind of hardening sounds bad. This other thing kind of sounds pious and commendable, hardworking, diligent, discipline. Now, certainly, there's a lot that could be said regarding life in the world. Work ethic and discipline and all those things, that's really good for the common kingdom of the world. No doubt about that. But spiritually, for our purposes, both kinds of hardening are damning. Indulging the flesh and seeking to establish your own righteousness. And both come from the same place. What is that? Trust in ourselves. There is a pattern of sound words that we trace back through the history of the church all the way to the apostles. We're saying nothing new. I read earlier some of John Calvin's words on verse 6 regarding the contrast between the merit of our works and the grace of God. I read earlier these words, For whether you introduce works, past or future, the declaration of Paul opposes you. For he says that grace leaves nothing to works. But he wrote more than that. He went on to say this, this 
ought to be applied to the whole of our salvation. That we may believe that the righteousness of works is annihilated whenever grace is mentioned. That sounds like Paul. It's God's grace, not our law keeping. It's Christ's merit, not our merit. Saving faith centers directly on Jesus. Accepting, receiving, and resting on him alone for my justification, the declaration that I am just, for my sanctification, the transformation of my life, and for my glorification, the fact that I will be raised to live with him forever. You understand, the message of Christianity is Jesus for us. What Paul has been heralding throughout Romans is Jesus for us. We believe that he came for us. We believe that he is all we've got. That he is the only place where our hope is to be found. This is what it is to be a believer. We renounce everything, including the most virtuous things about us, so that, like Paul wrote, we might be found in him. Not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. We herald from the rooftops that he took all our sin and guilt and shame and filth and he gave us his merit. We rejoice to tell and remind one another that we are forgiven and that we're cleansed and that on that great day when we stand before him, we will be declared just because he is just. We rejoice to know that his spirit is at work in us, conforming us to his image producing the fruit of his spirit. We take heart to know that in him, we will be raised to enjoy perfect, invincible fellowship with the Lord and to behold his glory forever. And all of this is because of his great love for us. And all of this will be a reality because Christ has done it. And we'll sing of it forever. And for now, we close in prayer.